you have to sort of figure what works for you. It is certainly possible to get beyond the point of diminishing returns. And uh, yeah, now you're too tired to do anything. For myself, I find somewhere between an hour and a half, an hour, 45 minutes is about as long as I can go before my body starts really complaining. When it starts complaining, yeah, the concentration breaks <laughs> up and so forth. Thoughts change the breath in excess concentration. Yes. You start thinking about something and your breath can change, which can be helpful for recognizing, oh, yeah, I started thinking. Drop that thought, label, relax, come back. More ease, exuberantly, erratically. <laughs> Effervescently, energetically, <laughs> yeah. Some of those I've heard before, some of them are, yeah, good. Um, <laughs> why it catches yet. What are some ways with dealing with very persistent thoughts arising in meditation and not at other times? When ignoring them and asking what they want aren't really working. <clears throat> Every time I close my eyes, uh, images flash every couple of seconds. Little emotional tone, knowing uh, that it keeps happening. Okay, so one thing to do if you're having repeated thoughts of the same thing is to name the thought, give it a name, a funny name. Uh, Rumpelstiltskin, Petunia. And when it shows up, okay, Petunia, look, I told you we don't need you. Just go take a break, we'll get back to you later. Just talk to it like it's a petulant child. Uh, this seems to help, uh, but yeah, stuff that just keeps coming, that, that's a difficult one. Can, there can be very persistent stuff. The thing that was tried of exploring what's behind it, that sometimes can be very helpful. And then, yeah, if that's not working, it's just like, okay, Petunia, go away. Uh, however you want to talk to it. And then relax and come back. Can the jhanas be done lying down? Yes. In fact, the Deepest I've ever been, I was lying down. Okay? Just kind of not fall asleep. <laughs> right? But yeah, they can be done lying down. Uh, slightly different because, yeah, you, you don't get quite the same feeling as you're going into the first of the jhanas or something like that. Uh, most people find in the fourth jhana they're slumping over and they can really feel the sinking down into it, which of course is not going to happen if you're lying down. But yeah, definitely possible to do the jhanas and do them very well when lying down. When I go from four to three, I briefly recall a contented memory and that triggers contentment, which I can lock onto. Yeah, that's a very good way to go backwards. You're, you're down in four and you want to go back up. Brief memory of what contentment feels like. And the same can be done going from three to two. Right? Just a brief memory of what happiness feels like and that can take you up. You can also just start cranking up 
be content with, uh, really content, like really, really content. Hanging out in China, five gray space around. How, who is watching me? Yeah. The experience is being experienced. That's what's happening. The who is something you're putting on top of it. And it's just being experienced. I can see that I am watching me, but how do I switch my attention to the consciousness of the boundless space? Okay, so... Look at the light. Now, can you become aware of your awareness of the light? It's a sort of a shift. You're out there at the light, and then it's a shift back to your awareness of the light. Right? Try playing with that with objects in your room. That's the clock. I've got my awareness of my clock. That's the chest of drawers. I'm aware of my awareness of the chest of drawers. So you're becoming conscious of your consciousness. Then you do it with regular old objects, so it's not a big deal. Once you get a, a feel for that, then you do exactly the same move, only the object that you're becoming aware of your awareness of is the infinite space, and that should take you into infinite consciousness, honestly. <sighs> Any practice recommendations to strengthen the compassion wing of practice? There's phrases you can use for compassion. Usually it's recommended that you find some, think of someone you know who's experiencing dukkha. And then you have a phrase something like, may you be free from dukkha. May you find some peace, or whatever. And so, like you would do metta practice by saying the phrases, you bring to mind someone that, yeah, you know is having some dukkha. And may you be free from dukkha. May you be free from dukkha. And just repeat it. Usually there's only one uh, phrase that's given for the uh, compassion practice. If you want to visualize something, for the metta, it's more like a, a bright light going out. So it's a searchlight or something. But for compassion, it's a vacuum cleaner. You're <laughs> sucking up their dukkha. There's a Tibetan practice called Tong Lin. If you're familiar with that practice, that's probably the best practice I know of for working with compassion. And that's basically to think of all the dukkha out in the world you breathe it in, not all at once, but think of someone who's having some dukkha, and take it in, and then you've got to transmute it, and then you exhale some love, or compassion, or flowers, or whatever, back to the person. So you're taking it in, and then you're specifically thinking of transmuting it, and exhaling it out. This is a very powerful practice. It does have its drawbacks, though, because you're just really focusing on all the dukkha out there in the world and taking it in. And if you don't think of the transmuting it and then turning it into something like love or flowers or whatever to exhale, 
It can be rather depressing. <coughs> How does compassion relate to the jhanas, especially the higher stages? Not really much there. It's possible to do compassion practice and generate access concentration and use that in the jhanas. So it can be used that way. But that's really about it. The jhanas in and of themselves are so far detached from well, anything that's going on that uh, it's just not really much in the way of compassion or anything going on while you're in them. You could come out of them and do compassion practice, just like you would do insight practice. You can come out of the jhanas and do metta. The, the jhana practice basically sets you up so that whatever practice you do next, you're going to do more effectively. Okay. So, I always kind of worry when I give this talk. <laughs> uh, <coughs> this is definitely advanced material. last two nights are the first time you ever heard of dependent origination. Yeah, this might be a little far out there. Um, so if, if in you know, trying to follow it, you just get like, <coughs> I don't know, don't worry about it. Uh, just come sit in another retreat with me, I'll probably get this off the again. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'll just put it out. Uh, yeah, it's kind of advanced stuff here, but sometimes that's useful. And I'm sure there should be some people who find it kind of interesting. So I want to start with what I consider to be the most profound discourse, most profound sutta in the whole of the Pali Canon. This comes from the Connected Discourses, the Samyutta Nikaya, Book 12. Book 12 is on dependent origination. And there are 95 or so suttas on dependent origination. This is the 15th one, so SN 12.15. And it's entitled the Katyana Gota Sutta. Thus have I heard, once the Blessed One was living at Sabati. And then the venerable Katyana Gota approached the Blessed One paid homage to him and sat down to one side. <coughs> so this is a clue, this is going to be an advanced teaching. It's the venerable Kachyanagota. It's not some monk or even Kachyanagota. So it's to a follower of the Buddha who has enough standing to be considered to be venerable. Sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, it is said, right view, right view. In what way, Venerable Sir, is there right view? <coughs> so we're going to get the deepest definition of right view. This world, Kachyana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of it is and the notion of it is not. That's the literal translation. The duality is, to be said, the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. 
does the bell exist? Right, the bell exists, right? That's obvious, what do people say? I ask you, does Santa Claus exist? Turns out Santa Claus doesn't exist. Right? This is how we're dealing with the world. It's a kind of a useful way to deal with the world. But it's got its limitations. Uh, because, well, when we say something exists, we've conceptualized it and concretized it and made it a thing. Right? Is actually a helmet for a very small person. <laughs> well, actually, it used to be probably a flat piece of metal that they put in a press and formed like this, right? And the metal, well, that was inside the earth. Well, actually, it was probably inside of a supernova at one point and got blown out into the universe, and, and you know, we'll go on for a long time describing that. It's basically missing the fact that the table is conceptually a table, but there's a lot that goes into it. It used to be trees, they were cut down. Before they were cut down, the trees were growing because of the sunshine and the rain and the nourishment in the soil, and we could go on it for a long ways with that. But because is usually the fact that a table was used to be some trees is not particularly relevant to whatever you're going to put on the table. Right? So you just ignore that. But if you want to get the full picture, you've got to step outside of the duality of existence and non-existence. This world, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there's no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there's no notion of existence in regard to the world. If you really see the arising and passing of phenomena in the world, you don't get locked into ideas of existence and non-existence. It's flowing. It's verbs, not nouns. This world, Katyana, for the most part, is shackled by engagement, clinging, and adherence. Views and opinions. Turns out my views and my opinions are always right. Isn't that interesting? But this one with right view does not become engaged and cling through that engagement and clinging. Mental standpoint, adherence, underlying tendency. One with right view does not take a stand about myself, my soul, my atma. We hear the Buddha taught not self. Sometimes you hear no self. But, you, know, you get the sense, yeah. He said there was no self. Well, no, he never said there was no self. What he said was, that's not self, that's not self. At one point, Vachagota comes to the Buddha. Vachagota is an interesting character. He shows up in a number of suttas. Uh, he was a wanderer from a different religion. 
And he comes to the Buddha and he asks him, Venerable Sir, is there a self? The Buddha doesn't reply. Hey, Venerable Sir, is there no self? The Buddha doesn't reply. Bhattacharya leaves. Nanda, the Buddha's attendant sitting nearby, says, well, sir, why didn't you answer the wanderer of Bhachagota? Buddha replied, if I had told Bhachagota there was a self, he would have made the mistake of falling into eternalism. If I told him there was no self, he would have made the mistake of falling into annihilationism. Better not to say anything Lest the man get any more confused than he is already. Okay? Which is really wise, because Bhachagota kept coming back to the Buddha and asking more questions. And eventually, <laughs> after the Buddha answers a really powerful question, he says, Can I become a monk? <laughs> and he becomes a monk, and he eventually becomes fully awakened. So yeah, the Buddha was wise in not answering that. Sometimes people interpret this particular sutta when the Buddha says there's this duality of existence and non-existence. It says a duality of eternalism and annihilationism. But I think that's just the commentary of not understanding the sutta. But definitely the Buddha recognized that both of these are problems. It's not that you have a self that's going to live forever. It's not that you don't have a self. It's not that you have a self that's going to be annihilated. It's that everywhere you look, you can't find a self. But people want to have the, the one inside. It feels like there's somebody, so it must be true. And furthermore, uh, surely there's some way that self can be eternally happy. And then you make the mistake of falling into eternalism. And this is where Brahmanism went. Or, and there's so much deeper here, I want to get rid of this self. I want to annihilate the self so it never has to come back and face this again. And that's where the Jain religion went. Buddha says, one with right view does not take a stand about myself. Doesn't say there is, doesn't say there isn't. One with right view has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising, and what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. When I first came across that, I didn't get it. I mean, that chocolate cake was not dukkha. <laughs> you know, it arose, <coughs> it was pleasant. Well, it ceased, and the ceasing was kind of dukkha, but, you know, all that arises is dukkha? If you translate dukkha as suffering, it makes no sense. If you translate it as unpleasant, well, the cake was not unpleasant at all. I puzzled on this for a long time until I realized that actually a better translation of dukkha would be not a source of lasting happiness. The cake was not a source of lasting happiness. Temporarily, yeah. So all that arises, everything that arises, <laughs> is not a source of lasting happiness. 
And everything that ceases, that too was not a source of lasting happiness. This is actually really important because there are going to be things that arise that are sources of happiness, but not lasting happiness. And there are going to be things that are sources of happiness that cease because they're not sources of lasting happiness. If you can come to terms with that, you can appreciate them while they're there, not take them for granted assuming they're going to last forever. And then when they cease, it's like, yep, that's what happened. Instead of getting all bent out of shape. One's knowledge about this is independent of others. In other words, if you get this, you get it as an insight, an understood experience, then it's not, you're not dependent on somebody else telling you how it is. You've actually experienced it for yourself. It is in this way, Katyana, that there is right beauty. All exists, Katyana, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tagata teaches the Dhamma via the middle. If this is necessary condition, that arises. If this necessary condition doesn't happen, that does not so, Vidapataya Taha, or probably what it originally said was Vidapataya Cha, Apichasamapada. What's interesting is, that's not what the Pali version says. The Pali version says, with ignorance as condition, Sankaras come to be. With Sankaras as condition, consciousness comes to be. With, da -da 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 -da. with birth as condition, all day sickness, death, pains, our grief, lamentation, despair, and all the rest of the news that comes to be. With the cessation of ignorance, there's a cessation of consciousness. With the cessation of consciousness, the cessation of cessation of birth, and the cessation of all the news. Which, when I first read it, it was like, what? Why, why does it say that? Why is that there? Why didn't, why didn't the Buddha just say dependent origination? Not that everything exists, not that everything doesn't exist. It's that everything is dependently originated. How come he didn't say that? This other thing seems weird. And then I was reading the book I was talking about by Govind C. Pandey, the one where he talks about what's early and late in the suttas. And when he gets to this sutta, he says, this is an early sutta. However, it's been tampered with. It's been at the end about the 12 links revising and the 12 links ceasing appears to have been stuck in on top of whatever was there originally. Yes. <laughs> I think originally what the Buddha said was something like, everything exists as one extreme, nothing exists as another extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, Atatagata, one who is fully awakened, teaches the Dhamma via the middle. This, that conditionality dependent origination. And that's all that was said. And then a friend sent me a copy of the Chinese version of this sutta. And guess what it said? If this is necessary condition, that arises. With the ceasing of this necessary condition, that does not arise. 
And then he goes on and does the 12 legs. <coughs> so I'm guessing they sort of tampered with it. No, they're preserving this stuff, and they're chanting it to preserve it. That's how they managed to keep it going for a long time. It was a group recitation. And so if one person made a mistake, it didn't really matter because the other 20 people said it right. And so mistakes just got filtered out by the group as a whole saying it correctly. But then the chant master goes, you know, this would be really nice if we put a chorus at the end of it. <laughs> and they put in the 12 links, which occur over and over and over again at the end of several suttas in Book 12 of the Samyutta Nikaya on dependent origination, where they don't make any sense. And would, what would have made a lot better sense is just simply this, that, conditionality, dependent origination. So, the keys to this sutta are don't get lost in duality of existence and non-existence. It's useful in the real world, right? But if you want to get free, you need to see that everything is dependently originated. Right? It's just sodapon. Beings are dependently arising, processes, interacting. That's all that's going on. Now, the person that turned me on to this sutta was a fellow by the name of Nagarjuna. He lived in the second century AD. He was born into a Brahmin family in South India, and by the time he was 20, he excelled at the Brahmin teachings. He was recognized as a scholar. But he had an unfulfilled sensual side. He and three friends learned from a sorcerer how to make themselves invisible. One night they went sneaking into the king's harem quarters, as we can imagine, right? When the king found out about this, he was rather displeased. He stationed guards behind the curtains in the harem quarters and told them to strike above the footprints in the carpet. And when the guardsman and his friends returned, his three friends were killed. The Garjana only escaped because he stood next to the king. He fled the palace and headed for the hills. He had discovered craving leads to weeping. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> he began studying the early teachings of the Buddha. He, it is said in three months he completely mastered it. But he still had questions. At that point, he encountered a monk from the Mahayana tradition. The Mahayana tradition at that time was a newly emergent uh, school of Buddhism. The Mahayana practitioners felt that the monks who were practicing what we would call Theravada Buddhism, a non-Mahayana branch, 
were too isolated from the real world. They're living in their monasteries and they are not concerned about the uh, needs of the people. They weren't practicing compassion. And so the Mahayana tradition was a newly emergent system of thought that put a greater emphasis on compassion. Nagarjuna was impressed by this view and left his mountain hideaway travels throughout India seeking out other Mahayana texts. He engaged in debates with both Buddhist and non-Buddhist alike and defeated all comers. He eventually founded an order and rules for his monks to live by. He eventually said, I have no master. At that point, some Nagas. So Nagas play the role of dragons in Indian mythology. You could say Nagas are mythical, well, they live in lakes, but they're not sea serpents, they're mythical lake serpents, right? So these Nagas had compassion for Nagarjuna, and they took him to the bed of a lake where the Prajma Paramita Sutras had been secreted, had been entrusted to the Nagas. Prajma Paramita Sutras are discourses that the Buddha gave some 500 years earlier that were too advanced for the people of that time. And so this, these discourses were entrusted to the Nagas to preserve until someone had enough wisdom to understand them. And the Nagas now thought that Nagarjuna, yeah, had enough wisdom and they gave him the Prajma Paramita Sutras to bring back to the human realm. The Prajna Paramita Sutras talk a lot about emptiness. Now, emptiness doesn't mean that something doesn't exist. Emptiness means it has no inherent existence. It's empty of inherent existence. This is empty of tableness. The tableness is something we put on top of this form. It's just trees. Well, actually, trees is something we put on top of that. Right? All of the things are empty of any essence. Everything in the universe. <coughs> material, immaterial, ideas. And this is what the Prashma Paramitra Sutras are talking about. <coughs> When he returned to the human realm with the Prajna Paramita Sutras, he, Nagarjuna composed uh, commentaries on them. And one of those commentaries is the Mulamayamaka Karika, the fundamental verses of the Middle Way. It appears to be debate notes more than anything else. It's not a, po a polished reading. There are some 27 chapters on a large number of topics, all of them pointing out the emptiness of whatever the topic is. At some point, a king arranged for a contest of magic between Nagarjuna and a Brahmin scholar. The Brahmin scholar created a giant lotus pond with a giant lotus in the middle of the pond with himself seated on it and mocked Nagarjuna for being stranded on dry land. 
Nagarjuna conjured up a white elephant, which waded into the lotus pond, grabbed the Brahmin scholar, and threw him back on dry land. <laughs> the scholar admitted defeat, but wished that Nagarjuna were dead. <laughs> Nagarjuna locked himself in his room. The next day, a worried disciple broke down the door. A cicada flew out. The room was empty. At least that's the story that we have. All we know for sure is somebody wrote the Malamayama Karika. And whoever it was, was really quite brilliant. It's a difficult thing to understand. Uh, you're probably going to need to read it multiple times and study it and find some commentaries on it. But it's really quite brilliant. And it happens to mention by name the Kachyanagota Sutta. Uh, it's quite clear that Nagarjuna had quite uh, an affinity for the early suttas and quite a reverence for the historical Buddha. So what I want to do now is share a few of these, I hesitate to call them poems, these chapters with you, on emptiness to give you a sense of what it is. The first one is entitled Walking. This is Stephen Batchelor's translation <coughs> from his book, uh, Verses from the Center, Walking. I do not walk between the step already taken and the one I'm yet to take, which both are motionless. Is walking not the motion between one step and the next? What moves between them? Could I not move as I walk? If I move when I walk, there would be two motions, one moving me and one my feet. Two of us stroll by. There is no walking without walkers and no walkers without walking. Can I say that walkers walk? Didn't I say they don't? Walking does not start in steps taken or to come or in the act itself. Where does it begin? Before I raise a foot, is there motion, a step taken or to come, whence walking could begin? What has gone? What moves? What is to come? And I speak of walkers when neither walking, steps taken nor to come, ever end. Were walking and walker one, I would be unable to tell them apart. Were they different, there would be walkers who do not walk. These moving feet reveal a walker, but did not start him on his way. There was no walker prior to the to departure. Who was going where? Were walking and walker one, I would be unable to tell them apart. Were they different, it would be walkers who do not walk. So the act of walking is not the same as the one who walks. Yet they are definitely dependent on each other. Right? Neither has an essence. If the walker stops walking, the walking disappears. And if the walker stops being a walker, the walking disappears. If the walker 
stops walking, the walker disappears in terms of a concept. These are interrelated concepts dependent on each other. They, they don't have an independent existence. Seeing. If my eyes cannot see themselves, how can they see something else? Were there no trace of something seen, how could I see at all? Neither seeing nor unseeing cease. Seeing reveals the seer who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. How could you see and what would you see in the absence of a seer? Just as a child is born from mother and father, so consciousness springs from eyes and colorful shapes. Without these eyes, how could I know consciousness, contact, vedna, craving, clinging, becoming, birth, aging, and death? Seers seeing sights explain hearers hearing sounds, smellers smelling smells, tasters tasting tastes, touchers touching textures, Thinkers, thinking thoughts. So the seer and the seeing are not the same thing. They are dependent on each other. It's interesting. You can't see your own eyes. I mean, you can look in a mirror, but what you're actually seeing is a reflection of your eyes. You can't see your eyes. You can't hear your ear. You can't smell your nose, you can't taste your tongue. You go into the other, you can touch your body. But you can't touch the tip of your finger with the tip of your finger. You can only touch some other part of your body with your body. If you go into the other, you can think your own thoughts. Right? But if you think about a thought, the thinking about the thought is different from the thought. Right? How do you think a thought about the thought that's the right? <coughs> These, there's an interdependence here. Right? Seeing reveals a seer who is neither detached nor undetached from seeing. How could you see and what would you see in the absence of a seer? And so once again, we have an activity and we have a noun. And the two are related, but they're not identical. You can tell them apart, but you can't have one without the other. Body. I have no body apart from parts which form it. I know no parts apart from a body. A body with no parts would be unformed. A part of my body apart from my body would be absurd. Were the body here or not, it would need no parts. Heartless bodies are pointless. Do not get stuck in the body. I cannot say my body is like its parts. I cannot say it's something else. Vedna, perceptions, drives, minds, things are like this body in every way. Conflict with emptiness is no conflict. Objections to emptiness, no objections. I cannot say my body is like its parts. I cannot say it's something else. So 
My hand is not my body. It's a part of my body. You go get a haircut. You walk in. Your hair is part of you. Right? And when the haircut, and if you look at the floor, you go, oh my God, I'm laying on the floor. <laughs> right? Or you clip your fingernails. It's you, and then you're in the garbage can. So, when is it you, and when does it become not you? I mean, would it still be you if you lost your little finger? Because think of your red Corvette. I'm assuming everybody here has a red Corvette, right? Okay. What if you took off one of the wheels of your red Corvette? Would it still be a red Corvette? What if you took off all four wheels? Would it still be a red Corvette? What if you removed the steering wheel? What if you pulled out the seats? What if you pulled the engine? What if you dropped the transmission? What if you removed the differential? What if you unscrewed everything that could be unscrewed from and you laid out all the parts? Is it still a red Corvette, or is it just a pile of parts? If it's just a pile of parts, where did the red Corvette go? And at one point, did it stop being a red Corvette and just become a pile of parts? You put all the parts back together, and it's a red Corvette again. Where did the red Corvette come from? You're just a pile of parts. Thin fingers, thin toes, you've done the body scan, you know what to talk about, right? So you're not the same as the parts, but you're not different from the parts. The parts are part of what makes a body, but they're not the same as the body. The body is a dependently originated phenomenon. <laughs> And it's dependent on the parts. But the parts being a part of a body can't be apart from that body. Just like the hair on the floor, you don't consider it yours anymore. That's just trash for the hair cutter to sweep up. Right? This next one is entitled Self. Where mind and matter meet, I would come and go like them. If I were something else, they would say nothing about me. What is mine when there is no me? Were self-centered as ease, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think of. What is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixation. Buddhists speak of self and also teach not self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. Buddha said it is real and it is unreal and it is both real and unreal and it is neither one nor the other. It is all at ease, unfixable by fixation, incommunicatable, inconceivable, indivisible. You are not the same as or different from the conditions on which you depend. 
You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhists who care for the world. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. Maybe we should do these <laughs> Where mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. You change out all of your cells every seven years. There's different atoms from who you were seven years ago, right? So you're not those particular cells, you're not those particular atoms. And you change your mind a lot more frequently than that. So who are you? What's the you? You're not independent of that. Right? So they come and go, but you, you have the sense that you stay there. Where mind and matter me, I would come and go like them. So you're not the 50 pieces. And if they were something else, they would say nothing about you. If you were independent of those cells and your ideas and thoughts, you ought to be able to find that. What is mine when there is no me? The problem, Buddha says, is our craving and clinging. In order to crave something, it has to be the idea of somebody who's going to get it. Right? And to cling to something, there has to be the idea of somebody who's got it and is not going to let go of it. If you don't have a me that's going to call it mine, no problem. Were self-centeredness eased, I would not think of me and mine. There would be no one there to think about. What is inside is me, what is outside is mine. When these thoughts in compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. Fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops fixation. Fixations is Stephen Bachelor's translation of the Pali word papancha. Papancha, probably best translated as mental proliferation. There's a story about a man whose wife asked him to go to the market and buy some potatoes. Yes, dear. He gets his money, starts out the door. She says, and be sure and get a good price. Yes, dear. So he's walking to the market. He's thinking, yeah, she wants me to get good potatoes, too. I know that. You know, it's hard to get good potatoes for a good price. You can get bad potatoes for a good price. You can get good potatoes for a bad price. But getting good potatoes for a good price, that's really hard. You've got to watch out for these potato sellers. They're sneaky. They'll put bad potatoes on the bottom, good potatoes on top. I hate the smell of rotten potatoes. He walks up to the potato seller and says, You can keep your rotten potatoes. <laughs> right? This is papancha. Right? Ever do something like that? You know, you just get going on something and you build your entire world and you blurt out something completely inappropriate and everybody's like, where is that from? Right? Papancha spawns thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Emptiness stops papancha. 
you really get the sense of the emptiness. You're not fixated on things of the world, and you see just dependently originating phenomena. Yeah, less likely to get caught up in propulsion. Buddhists speak of self and also teach not self and also say there's nothing which is either self or not. So when the Buddha is teaching the Brahma Viharas, he says that one should give love to all as to oneself. So there's a self there. There's the selves you're giving the metta to, and there's the self of you that you give metta to. So the Buddha speaks of self in that context. He also teaches non-self. In the sutta we had on the aggregates, right? Oh, is form worthy of being self? No, Vedna, perceptions, middle activities, consciousness, worthy of being self? No, So he's teaching not self. And then in the Kachyanagota Sutta we had, the Buddha said, yeah, don't say self, don't say not self. One with right view does not take a stand about myself. Not Existent, it's not non-existent. When you start using those categories, you're missing the deeper picture. It's all just dependently originating. When things dissolve, there's nothing left to say. The unborn and unceasing are already free. When things dissolve, the thing that dissolves them is really deeply getting their empty nature. They don't exist. They don't not exist. They're simply the intersection of a bunch of streams of dependently arising processes. That's it. What's there? The unborn, because they're not really a thing, and the unceasing, they can't cease because they were never there in the first place, it's already free. The Buddha said it is real and it is unreal and it's both real and unreal and it's neither one nor the other. Depending on the circumstances, yeah, the Buddha taught to whatever was going to be useful for the person he was speaking to. He's not doing metaphysics. He's just trying to get people to practice. And what can he say to get them to practice? It is all at ease, unfixable by fixation. Is all at ease. No amount of papancha is going to be able to explain what's going on. It's incommunicatable, inconceivable, indivisible. Incommunicatable that, in the sense that there's no way you can actually fully describe what's going on because any description is going to have to use words, and the words are well, they're locking into things, and it's much more fluid and dynamic than any word can actually give you. The best words can do is serve as a finger pointing at the truth. Inconceivable. It's a little bit beyond our little pea brain ability to take it all in. It's beyond our ability to conceptualize it. Right? There's no way we can conceptualize the entire universe and what's going on with all these streams of dependently 
arising processes interacting. And it's indivisible. I said there were no nouns, it's all verbs. Turns out there's only one verb, unfolding. We could say the universe is unfolding, but the phrase the universe, we don't need that. There's just unfolding. That's all that's happening. But our little pea brains can't take it all in. And so we need to chop it up into bits and pieces that are bite-sized so we can handle it. And we can determine that this is something I need to get, and this is something I need to push away, and that's something I can ignore. We get all caught up in that, and then we get lost in greed, hatred, and delusion, and we wind up in dukkha. But truth be told, all that's happening is unfolding. And in order to deal with the unfolding that we find ourselves embedded in, we chop it up into bits and pieces, we call it things, we make them real, and say they exist, or they don't exist. I like to think of the universe as like, you know, the universe. Flat thing, you know? And it pokes up an eyeball. <laughs> like you've got a pair of eyeballs that look at around. Got little microphones on the side. Right? It's a sensing device. And it's actually a mobile sensing device. It's a mobile sensing device roaming around on the surface of the universe. It's just a piece of the universe. We think we're separate from the rest of the universe, but we're not. We're completely dependent on that 14 and a half pounds of air pressure holding you together. You remove that, you're dead. Right? You're completely dependent on the food and the water and the electricity and so many other things. There's the illusion of you being separate because your sense of touch only goes to the surface of your skin and, you know, I'm not that because I don't feel the touch over there. But there's so much more going on than we can actually pick up by just thinking that we end at the surface of our skin. You're the food you ate and the family of origin you grew up in, and the school you went to, and the language you speak, is way more than just the surface of your skin. You're just a piece of the universe roaming around on the surface of the universe. You're not separate from the entire universe. You're different from the entire universe. And don't go identifying and thinking you are the entire universe. You have no clue what's going on on the nearest inhabited planet to the star Betelgeuse at the equator at noon right now. You don't even know what planet that is. If you were the universe, you would know that. Right? You're just a piece of the universe. And of course, you get all caught up and think you're the most important piece of the universe. And now we have, to me, what is one of the most profound things I have ever encountered anyway. You are not the same as or different from conditions on which you depend. You are neither severed from nor forever fused with them. This is the deathless teaching of Buddhists who care for the world. The lettuce that you ate today, you're not the same as that lettuce. But you're never forever 
separated from it here. The lettuce went in and it's changed you. And yeah, you can't find the lettuce. It's not the same as you, but you're never separated from the conditions on which you depend. And you're never fused with them. When Buddhas don't appear and their followers are gone, the wisdom of awakening bursts forth by itself. The truth is out there. You don't need the Buddha to point it out if you're sharp enough. I was never going to be sharp enough. I'm very glad the Buddha pointed it out and have enough followers keeping his directions on how to see it because I'd have never seen it otherwise. But what I'm seeing is the way that it is. The instructions tell me where to look. Had I been smart enough to look on my own, I would see the empty nature of phenomena. I would see the duality of existence and non-existence really doesn't explain what's going on. I wouldn't fall into either of the extreme of all exist or nothing exists. And I would have seen soda pie without somebody having to pound dependent origination into my head for years and years. Thankfully, people did that. We'll do another one. This one is entitled Awakening by Stephen Batchelor. Uh, usually it's entitled The Four Noble Truths. Starts with an opponent complaining that the Garjana is corrupting the Dharma. The opponent says, if everything is empty, there would be no rising and passing. Ennobling truths would not exist. There would be no understanding. Letting go, cultivating, and realizing. There would be no understanding, letting go, cultivating, realizing. Without tasting the fruits of practice, there would be no Sangha. With no truths, no Dharma either. With no Sangha and Dharma, how could you awaken? Talk of emptiness maligns what is of value. Acts and fruits, good and evil, conventions fall apart. So the opponent has mistaken emptiness for non-existence, has mistaken emptiness for nihilism. Nagarjuna replies, not knowing emptiness, the need for it, or the point of it, you subvert it. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. Misperceiving emptiness hinders the unintelligent, like mishandling a snake or miscasting a spell. The Buddha despaired of teaching the Dharma, knowing it hard to intuit its depths. Your muddled conclusions do not affect emptiness. Your denial of emptiness does not affect me. When emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, Nothing would be possible. In projecting your faults onto me, you forget the horse you are riding. 
To see things existing by nature is to see them without causes or conditions. Thus subverting causality, agents, tools, and acts, starting, stopping, and ripening. Dependent origination is emptiness, which dependently configured is the middle way. Everything is dependently originated. Everything is empty. Well, this goes on, but this just gets you the idea that's most important in it, especially if you go back and take a closer look. The Dharma taught by Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truths of the world and truths which are sublime. It's usually called the relative and the absolute or the conventional and the ultimate. And we talked about that, right? Dante, convex, which is it? Right? It depends on your perspective. If you take a relative perspective, then you see relative truths and they're relatively useful. Like when I leave here, I'm going to put on my shoes, not your shoes. This will be a good thing, right? Okay. This is a relative truth, the fact that they're my shoes. Not really my shoes. I mean, when you really look at it, they're not even shoes. This is some leather and plastic and cotton and whatnot that wound up in that shape that I am using as my shoes. That's a relative truth. Useful, but it doesn't fully disclose what's going on. Gargina's literal words are truths that don't fully disclose and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. When you ask a who question, like who gets the karmic resultant done by the not-self, right? you're mixing up the two perspective, right? The not-self is from the absolute or the sublime perspective. The who is from the relative perspective. And asking a question like that doesn't really make any sense. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. It's not possible to speak the absolute truths. When we speak, we're using relative phrases and so forth. The best that we can hope for is to point at the absolute truth and that the people that are hearing what's being said don't get involved in looking at the fingernail polish in the ring and actually see what's being pointed at. Because without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. The relative truths don't explain what's going on well enough for you to get free. You want to get freedom, you're going to have to be able to view the world from the absolute perspective. Understand the sublime truths. Misperceiving emptiness injures the unintelligent, like you, Mr. Opponent, like mishandling a snake or miscasting a spell. You can see where Nagarjuna would be pretty confident in debate. <laughs> the Buddha despaired of teaching the Dhamma. Knowing it hard to intuit its steps. You've got lots of that in your eye. Your muddled conclusions do not affect emptiness. Your denial of emptiness does not affect me. 
When emptiness is possible, everything is possible. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. This goes on to explain that when there's emptiness, it means things can change. If this table had an essence of tableness, there would be no way that it could ever change, because it would have an essence in it. And if you needed firewood, well, you're stuck at the table. You can't change it into firewood. If you're drowning and it comes floating by, sorry, it's the table. You can't use it as a life raft. But because everything is empty, it changes. Those trees, they were empty. They got chopped down, milled into timber, set up, cut, put into this shape, and now we conventionally refer to it as a table, at least for now. Eventually, it will become firewood and get burned, and the carbon dioxide given off by the fire will be breathed in by other trees. You see, Mother Nature is just running a big recycling project. And you're part of the recycling. Were emptiness impossible, nothing would be possible. In projecting your faults onto me, you forget the horse you are riding. This is a story about an Indian man who had two dozen horses. And one morning, he went out to count his horses. He went to the corral, he mounted up on one of his horses. He rode out, he started counting his horses. One, two, three... 21, 22, 23. Oh no, someone stole one of my horses. Because he got the horse <laughs> to see things existing by nature is to see them without causes or conditions. If they have an essence, they have to have always had that. If things don't have an essence, then they could have arisen due to causes and conditions. Thus, subverting causality, agents, tools, and acts, starting, stopping, and ripening. And then, what most scholars say is the most important thing in here. Dependent origination is emptiness, which dependently configured is the middle way. Doesn't quite in this translation bring it out. Dependent origination is emptiness, and emptiness is also empty. Right? Don't go making an absolute of emptiness. It's just an idea, it's just another finger pointing to try and get us to see what's going on. But it's a pretty useful thing. And it's the middle way. It's the middle way between everything exists and nothing exists. This is what the Buddha is talking about when he's talking to Kashyana Soka. Right? The middle way between existence and non-existence is dependent origination. Dreams of dependently arising processes interacting. Everything is dependently originated. Everything is empty. And we'll skip the rest of this one. We'll pull one little thing out of the next one. The next one is entitled Nirvana. Samsara, samsara's horizons are no different than nirvana. No, samsara is no different from nirvana. Nirvana is no different from samsara. Samsara's horizons are nirvanas. The two are exactly the same. This is the famous equivalence of samsara and nirvana. And sometimes people get upset about this. But what Nagarjuna is saying is, this 
is samsara if you look at it with the eyes of craving and clinging. And this, the exact same thing, is nirvana if you look at it with the eyes of the Buddha. It's all about how you are relating to what's going on. Craving and clinging, stupid. Totally let go, stupid. So, this, with a, not a small amount of trepidation, I say, any questions? <laughs> <laughs> the last portion you just read, the, the samsara and nirvana, would you read, could you do it one more time? Samsara is no different from nirvana. Nirvana, nirvana is no different than samsara. Samsara's horizons are nirvana. The two are exactly the same. It just depends on how you look at it. Question. Sounds kind of misleading for me. Um, for example, your table. What makes it a table is not because it's wood or it's four legs. Um, I think what makes a table is because it's carrying your water bottle. What defines as a table is its function as a table. My nail, I can cut part of it. But in this place, I get another piece of nail, which functions as nail, as my nail. So I'm not sure if we are craving the material part of it or the functional part of it more. When you can see the functional part, you're beginning to move into the verb view of it, right? This is functional because I can put a water bottle on it. So Verbs are starting to happen here. But it's conceptual. So it's a table because I conceive of it as a table. It's a bell because I conceive of it as a bell. Or it's a water bowl if I uh, pour some water into it. Right? And like you say, the way that we conceive of it is related to how we're functioning with it. But all of that is conceptual. And what the emptiness is saying is there's no inherent essence in any of it. I mean, we can stop thinking of this as a table, get the legs off and throw in the fireplace, and it's just firewood. And again, a different function, a different conceiving of it. And it's empty. <laughs> so it has no essence because what we attribute to what it is arises of how we relate to it, and we relate to it with its function usually. Yeah. So it's pretty much the same thing, just expressed slightly differently. Yes. What does this feel like? What does this feel like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what it feels like when I got it. You know, um, there was a sense of freedom in it. 
sense that things weren't pinned down, that a lot of what was going on was being projected onto the world by me, and that if I could step back a bit, I didn't have to project onto the world what I had been projecting on before, and I could project differently onto the world, and project in a way that caused me less dukkha, recognizing that there is no inherent ableness in here. Well, now that usually didn't cause me dukkha, but recognizing other parts of the world, and in particular, beginning to see the relationship of a table not separate from the forest, not separate from its function, not separate from my concepts of it, uh, not separate from the fact that it could be something else. So there was there was a freedom in that, and it, it sort of reduced the tendency to engage with the world in a way that was more oriented towards craving and cleaning. There's also the sense of, yeah, that's what's going on. I mean, I came on the spiritual path, I wasn't looking for the end of Dukkha. I wanted to know, what's going on? What's actually happening? Why is it like this? And the Buddha never promised me that answer. He just said he'd get me to the end of Dukkha. He did it really well. But the interesting thing is, I haven't gotten to the end of Dukkha, but I do now understand what's going on. You know, it was like, oh, I got the answer I wanted. Just dreams of dependently arising processes interacting. And that, that gave me freedom in ways that reduce the tendency to blame or get upset or something. This is arising because there's a whole bunch of stuff that was set in motion long ago that's now coming to fruition. Does that change your sense, you know, the common sense that you have of being an observer behind your eyes to be open to receiving? That still arises. But I'm less fooled by it. And there's times when I can actually step out of it. And when I step out of it, then what I experience at that point seems more true, more authentic. But I fall back into living behind my eyeball. If it feels like that. The feeling only goes away in full awakening. I got more work to do. Continuing this reflection, where uh, or, or does compassion get connected to sense of it? And, and is that connection for you necessary or something when it's another way? Separate thing? Yeah. So what I've talked about tonight doesn't really relate to compassion. This is, this is the wisdom part, okay? When you get 
the wisdom really deep, then everything is seen as empty and there's not really a self here. If you're not careful, you can tumble into nihilism. Right? Nothing here, right? Not even me. It's all terrible. And we go in the garden and eat worms or whatever. <laughs> but if you balance that with compassion, if you go, but there are people who are experiencing dukkha. There's a lot of suffering in this world. And the wisdom I have obtained perhaps can make it easier for me to help alleviate some of that dukkha. I should go out and practice compassion to the best of my ability. It brings things back into balance. <coughs> I lost track a long time ago of people who come in to an interview having gotten a real big hit of not-self or emptiness. And yeah, they're, they're in an unstable state that's tending towards nihilism. So I put them to work doing metta practice. And, you know, you do the metta practice and it takes you towards the compassion. Towards realizing, yeah, it's a mess out there, but you actually now have a better understanding of what's going on and you can be of service to all those out there. That's compassionate action. So, yeah, what I've talked about tonight hasn't been on the wing of compassion, it's on the wing of wisdom. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about compassion as we get to the end of the retreat. Um, there are other retreats where you can find more of this. And yeah, I'm not going to give you sufficient compassion teachings to balance with the wisdom teachings I'm putting out. Just because I'm a head case, you know. <laughs> you know the Jungian types, I'm a thinker, not a feeler. And the people that are better at teaching you the compassion part of the feelers rather than the thinkers. So, yeah, you're stuck with my limitations, but hopefully it will at least be something useful for you and you can get the other stuff that you need from other teachers. I'm definitely not claiming to have the whole picture here. I'm just sharing what I find I have the ability to share. of free will. So I actually have a, an article, a, an essay I wrote on my website entitled Free Will, Determinism, and Santa Claus. So uh, the question is, is, is there such a thing as free will? Does free will exist? Or is it all determinism? Right? And so I raised the question, does Santa Claus exist? Well, he doesn't have a house at the North Pole. His ice caps are melting, right? And he can't live there anymore. Uh, well, yeah, Santa Claus doesn't really exist. Except he's got a lot of power. You have a misbehaving three-year-old in early December. All you got to say is, Santa Claus is watching. And, Good behavior immediately, right? 
So he's got power. And uh, he does ride in the Christmas parade, right? He sells Coca-Cola, right? So dear old non-existent Santa Claus has a lot of power. So the idea of existence and non-existence, it's a little hard to put Santa Claus in one of those buckets. He doesn't have ontological existence, but he exists as an idea that, yeah, sometimes can be quite powerful. Well, so the question is, does free will exist? We look at places where people feel that they don't have free will, prison, concentration camp or something, and they behave rather differently from places where people feel that they do have free will. So the concept of free will has an impact. Right? So the concept of free will certainly exists. So that raises the question, does, is the concept of determinism anything more than a concept? And the more I looked at it, I realized that if you look from the relative perspective, what you see is free will. And what you look see when you look from the absolute perspective is determinism. They're both concepts. Neither one has existence or non-existence. It's in the middle. Right? So is there free will? Well, that's what you see when you look from the relative perspective. Is it all determinism? Well, that's what you see when you look from the absolute perspective. But to try and say it's this and not that, you're making the mistake of falling into the duality that the Buddha says you shouldn't fall into, existence and non-existence. You see it all as dependently originated processes interacting. If you look at it from the planet origination point of view, something depends on so many things, and all those things depend on so many things that you cannot deterministically say it's going to happen this way, right. or free will exists going forward. Right. <laughs> yeah, you nice certainly try. can't determine what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, but if you look from the absolute perspective, you can just say, yeah, but it's all going to unfold through the causes and conditions. And you look from the relative perspective and you go, yeah, people are going to make their choices. And it's going to unfold that way. So it really does matter whether you look from that <coughs> perspective or that perspective. <coughs> okay, we're way over time again. So you brief method. Again, please put your attention on your breath for a few moments. a good thing when that arises? you appreciate it when you're happy? Do you like 
like to be happy right now? And you get in touch with the fact that you like to be happy. <coughs> and it's a good thing when you're happy. You like it when your friends are happy? It's a good thing when your friends are happy. Yeah, may they be happy as well as me. If your acquaintances are happy, that definitely makes life go easier. Go to work and all your co-workers are happy. That's pretty good. Neighbors are all happy. Go into a store, a restaurant, everybody there is happy. That's a good thing, right? If the difficult people in your life were happier, maybe they wouldn't be so difficult. Especially if they got their happiness in wholesome ways. Yeah, may I be happy? People I'm close to be happy. May my acquaintances be happy. May the difficult people in my life be happy. May all beings everywhere 